For those visiting with us this morning, uh, this is the part of our gathering where we uh, open God's word to us. We believe the scriptures are just that, God's word and message to us. And we, uh, it's my task to, um, to unpack for us uh, what God would have for us. And as a, um, a church, we were working our way through John's gospel, one of these uh, early Greco-Roman biographies written of Jesus by one of Jesus' very best friends, John. And this is actually a turning point in John's gospel. It's, um, it, it's one of those passages that underscores for me the, the importance of just consecutively going through the scriptures, because this is a passage I'd probably never choose on my own. Um, and yet God's truth isn't, isn't like a going to the deli counter where, you know, you say, I'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of that, and I'll skip right over those things I don't like. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I was reminded, this passage talks about God's judgment. And um, not, a, not an incredibly popular topic in, uh, in 21st century Canada, uh, not seen as uh, terribly enlightened. And uh, it reminded me of uh, this past Thursday, I, I was uh, privileged to preach at the chapel services at Pleasant Manor. And um, they, they followed the lectionary there, and so I have an, a passage assigned to me, and it was this great uplifting passage from... Amos chapter 5, which says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord, which is another um, expression for this judgment day. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness and not light. This beautiful picture. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. And as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite at him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Preach that. (laughs) Dare you. And I was a little behind this week. I was violently ill earlier in the week, which is another whole fun thing. So... I don't know which is worse, preaching Amos 5 or getting sick. And I open John 12, and I'm like, oh, good, more judgment. All right, here we go. You ready? But it's good news. It's good news this morning. God's word to us is always good news. Amos 5 is good news to us, too, actually. It's good news to us, even though we may not choose it. So this passage has two parts to it, John 12, if you look at it. Two parts. First part is John's commentary on Jesus' ministry up to this point. And then Jesus is, begins to cry out. He gives his very last public sermon, his last public teaching in John's gospel. And so really this is a turning point in John's gospel because he is now in chapter 13, um, in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, is really the longest section of Jesus' teaching we have anywhere in the Gospels. But it's Jesus has retreated to the upper room with his disciples. And he is teaching them and uh, preparing them to be sent out. To be sent out as his ambassadors, as his missionaries. And so it's a really exciting passage for us to consider in the, in the coming year as we work our way and subject ourselves to the same teaching of Jesus to be um, taught and, and equipped and and as his sent ones, as his ambassadors. But this is the final word of Jesus to the Jewish community to which he came. 
And really, it's a word that would um, reinforce what John wrote about him in his prologue. In John chapter 1, he he came to his own, and his own received him not. Because they loved darkness rather than light. And so John here gives a commentary on as to, you know, even though Jesus had done all these signs, right, with this great theme of John's gospel, the signs of Jesus, seven signs in these first uh, 12 chapters, these miraculous signs that Jesus does that point to who he is. And he tells us in John chapter 20 that he recorded these signs. He says, I could have told you way more signs that Jesus did, but I recorded these ones. I've written down these signs so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that by believing in Him, you'd have life in His name. And so John says, even though the Jewish community had seen all of these miraculous signs done in their presence, they would still not believe in Him. And he says, gives a couple reasons why. And so I'm going to break this passage down into three things that, uh, that God, um, through His Spirit, says to us that we need from Jesus. The first thing is that Jesus says, is you need my power to believe. You need my power to believe. Verse 37 says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they would not believe in him. Why wouldn't they believe in him? Well, look at verse 40. John's quoting the prophet Isaiah, where he says, he, that's God, has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, or turn, and I would heal them. He says, the reason they don't believe in Jesus is because God has blinded their eyes, because God has hardened their heart. He goes down, though, and says, second reason why they don't believe in him. Verse 43, second reason, for they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. They would not believe because they loved praise from men more than praise from God. See, this is really uh, the New Testament version of um, what's this interplay we see in the, in the book of Exodus. Do you remember the book of Exodus? Moses is sent by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And uh, there's this interplay, and God sends these plagues, plague after plague after plague, uh, until finally the Israelites can go. But throughout the book of Exodus, uh, there will be times where it says that, um, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then sometimes, like two verses later, it'll say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And you see this interplay, like dozens of times, actually, in a few chapters in the book of Exodus, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's like in the prophets, uh, the prophets say over and over again things like um, to the Israelites who were uh, forgetting about God and disobeying God, and God says, I'm going to raise up Assyria, and they're going to attack you to punish you for forgetting about me. And then like a couple verses later, they'll say, And I'm going to punish Assyria for attacking you. It's like, what is it? Is God in control of my choices, or am I making free and responsible choices? Is God in control of our choices, or are we making free choices ourselves? Are we making responsible choices ourselves? And I think the answer of the Bible is yes. Totally. Yes. 
God is in control of your choices. And yes, you're making free and responsible choices. You see, the, the scripture teaches that everything happens according to the plan of God. And to, the, to the decree of God. That everything happens according to fulfill his plan, including your choices. And yet you're never coerced. You're never forced. You're completely free. And you're completely responsible. You see, we think of this, these two truths as, like, as a zero-sum game, right? That they're in, somehow in tension with each other. And, and so maybe we're, you know, it's 80% God's plan and 20% my choice. Or maybe it's 50-50. But the scripture actually teaches it's 100%, 100%. That, that, that your choices are completely because of the plan of God, and yet you are completely free and completely responsible for your choices. You understand this? Me neither. <laughs> and that's okay. It's okay that we don't understand it all. Do, do you expect that your brain will be able to understand the complexities of ultimate reality perfectly? Should we, should we expect that we should be able to understand ultimate reality perfectly and completely? It's, it, it, it's analogous in some ways to how scientists you know, have the particle theory of light. In some ways, part, uh, light operates as, and, and behaves as though it's a particle and in other ways, behaves like it's a wave. But you can't be both a particle and a wave. And yet it seems like it's both. It's, it's kind of like that. But it's okay that, that we can't quite wrap our heads around this truth. That the people here didn't believe in Jesus because God hardened their hearts and they loved the praises of men rather than the praise that comes from God. They were responsible, and yet God is sovereign. Now, this truth, though, believing that it's a 100%, 100%, that it's not intention, that it's not um, you know, a zero-sum game, this truth has, is very practical. It's very, very practical in our lives. If we believe this, if we would really hold on to this and grasp this truth, you know, we'd be able to be people of hard work and rest. Hard work and rest. If you believe it's all, you're free and responsible, and it's, it's like 100%, God's just you know, playing catch-up to our choices, and it all really depends on what happens, really depends on my choices. I don't know that I could live under the anxiety of that. How could we ever rest? If we're masters of our own domain. How could we rest? But if we were more fatalistic and said, well, no, it's just all 100% God's plan. It really doesn't matter what I decide. How could we work hard? We'd be, create this passivity in us, this fatalism, right? And yet the scripture teaches both. And so we can be people of hard work and rest well. It can be a great comfort to us that even though you may make a bad decision, your life is not on plan B. Your life's not on plan B. 
even though we've messed up our life, it seems, considerably. In fact, can you make a mess of your life? Can you even, through your choices, make a real mess of your life? The answer is yes and no, but ultimately no. Yes, you're free and responsible, and so you can make a big mess of your life that have crazy consequences, but can you make a mess of your life? No, because God's plan is going to work out. He will accomplish his purposes. And so that ultimately, no, you can't make a mess of your life. Think of, think of like the biblical character of Jacob who, who just like sin after sin after sin after sin, and yet he's never on God's plan B. He's never on plan B. He's always on God's plan A for his life. You can be people of hard work and rest. This truth creates great humility in us. You can never feel superior to anyone else. John, Jesus says in John 15, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You can never feel superior to anyone else. And this, this truth gives us great security too. Great security. Great, great security. Guys, if you're, if you're married and your wife comes and says, Honey, do you love me? The correct answer is yes. And then she says, Honey, why do you love me? Here's what you shouldn't say. (laughs) Honey, I, I love you because you were the prettiest girl in class. Honey, I I love you because you're so smart. You're brilliant. Honey, I I love you because you're so fit. Don't go there. You know what all those answers have in common? A couple things. I love you because you're useful to me. Right? You're useful to me. You know, you're brilliant, so we can talk about things stuff you're beautiful and so you spark something in me but they're also so fickle right beauty fades so does your intellect and will your love last beyond that you know what the right answer is why do you love me honey I love you because I love you because I've, I've, I've chosen to love you. There's, there's, there's nothing behind it. There's, no, there's nothing underneath it. It's not, love isn't based, and that's what God says to us. He says, I love you because I love you. It's not based on the ups and downs of our performance. There's great security in this truth. Scriptures teach here in John 12 that we need Jesus' power to believe. Secondly, Jesus teaches here in his last public sermon, you need my light in your darkness. You need my light in your darkness. He says, I've come into the world, verse 46, as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. He says, everyone's in darkness, but you don't have to stay there. I've come as a light. And that's, again, referring back to the prologue of John, that the light has shone into the darkness. The darkness has not comprehended it, but but Jesus has come as a light to shine into the darkness. Everyone is in darkness, and he's saying, your only hope is me. What's dark? Darkness, obviously, is a metaphor, but what's it a metaphor of? It's a metaphor when you say, I'm, in, I'm just in the dark. Well, 
It's a metaphor for hopelessness, right? That it's just, I'm stumbling around in the dark. I just don't know. I'm, I'm confused. I have no hope and no way of getting out. But if you say, if I see, I see a light at the end of the tunnel, that's like, I, there's some hope. I have some hope. The light at the end of the tunnel is a, is a, meta, is, is a statement of hope. Meta, it's also a metaphor for evil, right? Darkness. Jesus says we're all hopeless and we're all, in, we're all in evil. And he says, without me, this world has no resources for hope. Without me, this, this world has no solution for evil. I mean, I, we could talk about this all day, all day long. But let me just, let me just e- exemplify in two different ways why that's the case. Why there's no, no resources for hope without Jesus. Um, much of this... Uh, Thinking here has come from a book I've been reading recently. Um, oh, I just lost it. Tim Keller wrote it. It's his latest book. I forget the name of it. Uh, it'll come to me in three minutes. Um, anyhow, it's about secularism. And, um, and uh, in, in it, he quotes Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell is trying to say, well, if naturalistic view of looking at the world is just a purely scientific view of looking at the world is true. If, you know, science says everything has a natural cause and this world, this natural world is all that there is, what, um, what, what's, the, what's the outworking of that? And this is what Bertrand Russell, this brilliant atheist uh, philosopher says. He says, man, if that's the case, then man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. Okay, man is the outcome of causes which had no provision. They, it was blind, right? There's, it, you were not the end in mind. Humanity was not the end that these causes had in mind. His origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve the individual life beyond the grave. No matter what you do, you're going to die, and you're gone. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of the human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and the whole of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built well isn't that a great pick me up right (laughs) we love science right we love scientists a lot of scientists believe in god and and science has accomplished much great things but but the naturalistic scientific view of looking at the world that if that everything has a natural cause this world is all there is nothing matters ultimately and just give way to un- build your life on unyielding despair. This world has no hope. If there is no God, this world has no hope. And if there's no God without Jesus, this world has no resources for, e- for, for solutions for evil. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. is rightly revered, right? As a, this fighter for, um, for justice. And, uh, and, and, and uh, liberation and, and, and civil rights in the United States. Well, Martin, and he was leading this movement of civil disobedience, and he was thrown in jail in Birmingham, and 
um, some white ministers wrote a letter to him and was basically saying, you, how can you, as a Christian minister, because uh, Martin Luther King was a pastor, how can, a preacher, how can you encourage people to break the law? These laws were democratically voted on. How can you encourage people to break the law? And so he wrote what's his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And this is what he, he says. How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? That's the, that's the question. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that's not rooted in eternal and natural law. So, so what's Martin Luther King Jr. saying? He's like, we need to have some basis upon which to judge right and wrong. He's, he's saying if... if if we're, if we're making judgments about what's right and what's wrong, but it's not rooted in this eternal law, this law of God, the moral law of God, there is no firm foundation for right and wrong. We can't, we can't, we can't determine the difference between a just or an unjust law without an eternal law, without a law of God. Which is incredibly ironic, right? That the people who rightly revere Martin Luther King don't agree at all with the foundation upon which his work was built. That you need a law of God in order to even call evil, evil. In order to call unjust laws unjust. Jesus says, without me, you have no hope in this world. You have no resources for hope. Jesus says, without me, you have no resources to, uh, for, or solutions for evil in this world. You, in fact, you can't even begin to talk about evil. In this world without me. Which brings to the last point that Jesus says. Is that you actually need my judgment. You actually need my. The judgment that I bring. Look at verse 47. He says as for the person who hears my words. But does not keep the word. Keep them. I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world. But to save it. There is a judge. For the one who rejects me. And does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke. Will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. He says two things about this judgment that he brings. He says two things about it. He says, first of all, that there is a judge on the last day. Right? Did you catch that? He's very clear. There is a judge. There is a judge on the last day, which should lead us to be happy and scared to death. It should lead us to be happy and scared to death. It should lead us to be happy because this day, this judgment day that's coming, that at the end, at the at last day, there will be a judge on this earth who will make every wrong right, who will make everything sad come true, where everything that's broken will be put back together, everything that's fallen will be lifted back up, that this world will ultimately and finally be put back right, the way God intended, the dream that God had for this world when he made it which should be incredibly hope-giving for us. You know, the, the charge against this view that, that God is coming, that as in the words of the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus is returning and that he will judge the living and the dead on his return, that this view, this doctrine, this teaching of the Christian church is seen really in our secular society as, as being kind of dangerous. That if you believe in a judgmental God, it won't... And, um, 
won't that, won't that lead you to be a person of violence and retribution? And won't you kind of start to take judgment into your own hands? And um, I love what uh, uh, Miroslav Volf says about this. Miroslav Volf is a contemporary uh, theologian. He lives in New York City, but he's from Croatia. And, um, and so he's, he grew up in like the Yugoslavia, Serbia, Bosnia conflict. And he, he actually says, no, the, the judgment of God, this view of the coming judgment of God provides deep resources for peace. He says, if, if you believe actually that the judgment of God um, is going to lead to a life of violence, you've probably, you've probably never been the victim of injustice. You've probably led a very easy life. He says, imagine, imagine my people who've had their village, villages burned, whose daughters and have been raped, whose sons have had their thro- throats slit. And he says, so imagine being these people, and you come and say, well, you know, let's all just get along. Can't we all just get along? He says, he says no, like, for someone who's been so oppressed, who's been so wronged, he says that the natural response is to take up the sword and to continue the cycle of violence. To continue that cycle of violence. He says that violence is actually encouraged by belief that God is failing to do justice. He says, but if you believe in the judgment day of God, that God is coming, that every wrong, that every oppression, that every cruelty will be punished that justice will be served, that justice will be made right, now you have great and deep resources for peace. You have deep resources that this world cannot offer you to actually lay down your sword. You see, the judgment day of God, we need the judgment day of God. Or else we're going to be tempted to take that sword into our own hands and meet meet justice out ourselves. But Tim Keller says, if there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? He says, but if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for me? If there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? How will justice ever reign? How will, how will everything wrong actually ever be put right? If there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for us? Because our hands aren't clean. You say you can't get rid of the judgment day of God, but you can't go into it either. Now, Francis Schaeffer gives this, this incredible illustration of, he says, oh, well, um, you know, maybe, maybe you struggle with a God who's judgmental and who holds uh, humanity to uh, his standard, to his moral law, to his Ten Commandments. <coughs> maybe you struggle with that. So he says, forget about that for a moment. And just, just imagine that you had a, a tape recorder hung around your neck and um, it just, it automatically started recording every time you gave advice to someone. Every time you said, you ought to do this, or you ought to be like that, or shouldn't, shouldn't you do this? And it just recorded that. He says, how about if at the judgment you came before God and God says, you know what, I'm going to go easy on you. I'm not going to hold you up to my high standard, to my perfect moral standard. We'll do away with that. I'll just hold you to your own. And you played the tape recorder back of every time that you said to someone, you should do this, you ought to do that. He says, there's not one of us who'd live up even to our own standard. Never mind God's standard. None of us can hold up to our own standard, not never mind the standard that God would have for us. 
And so what hope is there for us? If there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for us? Well, hope is found in the second thing that Jesus says about the judgment that he brings. Verse 47, it's kind of, it's kind of smuggled in there. He says, as for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. You see, the first time he came, he came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. The second time he comes, he's coming to bring judgment. He's coming as a king. He's going to be the judge of the living and the dead. But the first time he came, he didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He came not with a sword in his hand, but with a sword in his side. The light of the world was plunged into darkness. The one person who had the right to judge the world was judged by the world. You know, there's this incredible passage in Exodus chapter 17 where uh, Moses is leading the people of, uh, of Israel through the desert, through the wilderness to the promised land, and they run out of water. And the people start grumbling and complaining and saying to Moses, well, he just brought us out here to die of thirst. Thanks a lot. And God says to Moses, he says, assemble the people on this rock. Assemble the people at the rock and bring your rod, bring your staff with you. The one that you use to separate the Red Sea, bring that one with you. This, this, this sign of judgment, the sign of justice. And, and so they're setting up this court case. And God says uh, to the people, or he says to Moses, um, that I will stand before the people this day. And this is the only time in the entire scripture where it says that God is going to stand before people. Every other time, people stand before God. He says, God, I, God says, I'm going to stand before the people on the rock that day. And, and, and so they're setting up this trial, and Moses is sure someone's going to pay. Whoever stirred up the trouble, whoever stirred up the grumbling, whoever stirred up the complaining against Moses and God is going to pay that day. But God says this. He says, he says Moses, take your staff and strike the rock. Hit the rock. Let justice, let judgment fall down on the rock where I stand. And he does that and water flows out of the rock. And Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and he says, and that rock is Christ. That judgment fell on God. That, that God got down, God the judge got down out of the bench and entered into the prisoner's dock. That the judge of the world came not to judge but to be judged. To bear judgment. He didn't bring judgment, he came to bear judgment. And so follower of Jesus, believer in Christ, your judgment day has moved from the future to the past. Jesus came not to bring judgment, but to bear your judgment. And so he moves your judgment day from the future. Your judgment day has already passed. The judgment on your sin has already passed. You see, and this gives us great resources for life right now as we live between two judgments. The judgment that has passed on Calvary's hill as, the, as, the, as the, the Son of God, was, the light of the world was plunged into darkness, right? Noonday, midday, total darkness covers the face of the earth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Light of the world plunged into darkness. The judge of the world bearing judgment of our sin. That gives us great resources for the life we live right now. You're constantly being judged. We... We, we play this little charade in our culture, right? That, oh, we're a judgment-free zone. 
What a joke. You, you are constantly judging other people, and everyone is always judging you. They judge your waistline or your appearance. They judge your resume or your performance. They judge your personality and your image. You're constantly being evaluated. But your judgment day has passed. Your judgment is in the past. Can that not free you from what everyone else thinks about you? At least a little bit. Your judgment day is in the past. It's not in the future. And if we would live for those things in which we're constantly being judged, what anxiety, what a treadmill of, of not being able to keep up. Man, I got to keep my appearance a certain way, and I got to perform, and I got to do this, and I got to do that. And am I measuring up? Am I, what does this person think of me, and what does that person think of me? Your judgment day is in the past. The only judgment that really matters is in the past. And you can know you're loved and cherished and adored by the only one who really matters. Jesus, the only judge who is judged for you. This judge who cried out. Who cried out. You see, this wasn't a cold sermon that Jesus gives. He's crying out. He says, believe in me. Come to me. I came to save. I came not to judge. And so the judgment day of God is, is tremendous resources, is tremendously good news for us. There's ultimate meaning. There's real purpose. There's true hope. There's lasting joy. There's freedom from judgment. There's freedom from sin. There's real light. There's true light that's available for you. Would you pray with me? So Father in heaven, we sometimes, we so often feel the weight of this. We we, we, we want justice, we, de- we desire justice, and we want this world put right, and yet if you're going to put this world right, what's going to happen to me? Because so much of what's wrong with this world is because of my selfishness. And we feel the tension of that, Lord. If there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for me? And so, Lord, in confession, we come to you. And with thanksgiving, Lord Jesus, we come to thank you that you have moved our judgment day from the past, or from the future to the past. So that we can stop living for all the judgments of this world. And that we could have real meaning and real hope and real resources for overcoming the evil in this world and the evil in our own hearts. So thank you, Father, for sending your one and only Son. We worship you. And I pray, Father, that you would set us free this morning. Set us free to really believe this. In Jesus' name I pray.